Hello and welcome to Where's the Exit, the podcast for tech entrepreneurs who are looking to leverage their IP to maximize their exit valuation. Today, I'm joined by Alan Chapman. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks, Dave. Um, now, for people who don't know, I ask everybody who comes on the show this, but for people who don't know you already, can you give us a little sort of potted history of Alan Chapman? We go back away. We've sort of known each other for a long time in the profession, but can you just give the listeners a bit of a history of what you've been doing, what's led you to where you are now, and what you're doing now as well. Sure, sure. So, uh, so I'm a UK and European qualified patent attorney. Um, I started off my life in the profession working for the Defence Procurement Agency, so a section of Ministry of Defence. So that was largely sort of dealing with uh, procurement contracts for defence equipment. Um, I moved from there into sort of private practice firm of patent attorneys where I did most of my training and qualification. Mm -hmm. um, that was a large firm, then moved on to a smaller firm where I dealt a bit more with SMEs and startups and some university spin-outs. Uh, and I've gone from there into a few different in-house roles now, yeah. um, starting off with the likes of Dyson to a, a smaller company yeah. um, who dealt with hydrogen fuel cells and these sorts of things. So uh, quite a broad spectrum of entities that I've been involved with one way or another. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great uh, wealth of experience that we can draw on today, and I fully intend uh, to do that. Um, and actually talking about the sort of the number of roles um, that you've been in and different, you've been both sides of the fence. So you've kind of been private practice and in-house. Um, and not only that, but there's been a various sort of roles that mean that you've actually got a fairly broad range of experience on each side of the fence. So one of the things um, I talk about a lot is that smaller tech businesses whether they be startups or moving through to sort of SME you know scaled up type businesses they're often lacking sort of in-house IP knowledge and expertise um mainly because they can't justify getting that in um but you know the, the fact remains that it's not there in the business so that can make things quite tough for them and I was interested in your perspective on that actually having been sort of private practice delivering services to businesses and then also being in-house and delivering what is probably a very different set of services to to businesses what's your take on on that and the difference the main differences between those two roles from the from the business's perspective what does the business get from you in-house compared to sort of private practice yeah i think the the key thing is in private practice again because you're you know you're effectively an outsourced service you've yeah. got limited touch points you know you're a, you're a cost yeah. um and you cost every time someone touches you effectively so those <laughs> limited touch points means there's you're only getting a filtered filtered set of information effectively yeah. from a client when you're in private practice um and you're operating off that information in isolation whereas when you're in an in-house role you're there day in day out um, yeah. you hopefully you hopefully build up a network of people across the business who you interact with yeah uh, you can proactively engage with all of those people you can get involved in all sorts of different bits and pieces to give you insight to what the business is doing not only from a tech perspective but from a sort of business model perspective across yeah. across the whole piece so it makes it a lot easier to to pick out things to, to identify issues um proactively rather than relying on the business as in a sort of yeah. client relationship for them to say this is our problem we need you to solve it or can you help us with this you can proactively do that stuff and you pick up so much more you now yeah. I, I have actually in the past there was a client who i then oh, i worked with in private practice who i went to work in-house for right and then 
a whole range of things that they didn't even realize they needed or had issues with that I sure. picked up on from being in that role because I just had was able to see the whole picture and was yeah. able to be in the meetings and read all the documents and all those sorts of bits and pieces you just simply don't have time for when you're in that sort of client relationship instead and that's really interesting actually the idea that you were sort of you were private practice providing them with services and then you were in-house with the same client so even yeah. though you'd been sort of working for them in private practice it was it really does highlight the difference between being in-house and getting all of that as you say that business knowledge um compared to sort of being you know you can you're always going to be slightly arm's length aren't you no, no matter how much you try and integrate as a as an external counsel um but you mentioned sort of like the isolation there uh, so not isolation but being a bit more isolated and sort of not quite getting the full picture as as private you know uh, as um outside counsel so what do you uh, having identified that what do you do and is there anything you can do that sort of improves that situation um because all of these people are charging for their time pretty much so is there a way to try and get them to spend that time getting to know you though and it's not going to cost you an absolute fortune have you got any tricks on, on that or is it just a, an intractable problem uh i think there are things you can do i think for starters you know it depends to some extent on the relationship with the service provider but most of the time i would look to try and build into my relationship with that service provider an element of free time yeah. you know you come and spend some time with me on a regular basis yeah. to try and get a bit more of that overview of what's going on so it's not just come and sit with my engineer and draft the patent application whatever it might be it's come and sit and listen to this or come and sit and you know we'll spend half a day give you an update on everything we're doing whether we think it's relevant or not to any yeah. of your particular work so you get that picture yeah. um, and i have had that that situation being an in-house council where we've outsourced to our mm-hmm. outside council and they have proactively taken the time to go okay we want to come and sit with you and just understand what's going on so we can yeah. see what's coming in the pipeline in six months time whatever it might be and i'll tell you what it did help really grease the wheels on that relationship in terms of getting the work done in an effective way so i certainly yeah. think it's worth doing and i and i you know to be honest i'd be asking questions if i said to a service provider can you provide me some free time or some discounted time or something to come along and sit with me to get this view particularly if you don't have an in-house resource yourself yeah yeah and and if they i mean i guess you're right that i mean a good service provider would would provide that but then you know some of the businesses you've mentioned that you've been in-house counsel for you've probably been managing fairly large accounts and fairly large chunks of work right so so for that yes i mean you're going to get a a big firm is going to give up some time because they can see you know there's a lot of potential revenue there but if you're a smaller business i guess it's more challenging to get um external providers to to give up that time and not and not charge for it it certainly can be but at the very least you know we've done things like in the past like um half day in the office and we'll pay you a discounted rate so they might be spending four hours with us and we'll pay them for three that sort of thing um i've done that with solicitors for example i was in-house ip council we didn't have any in-house sort of general legal council support So we negotiated half a day with people who were doing contracts for us. And again, they'd come in and spend half a day with us, with us at a discounted rate. And actually, again, that was really beneficial yeah. because they did get that less isolated view. But they were also sat down doing some of the work they'd be charging us full rate for otherwise. Yeah. So it was a, a double benefit. And again, if you're hoping to build a relationship with a service provider, I think that's certainly something that you should be looking to do. It's certainly something yeah. that I would be doing in that situation. I think that's a really good point. 
Um, and actually, I think that's a good thing that the listeners can take away and actually try and implement almost straight away. If you're using whatever sort of external provider it is, but we're talking about legal sector and IP specifically, but if you're using a, an IP provider, then then try and get them to sort of spend more time with you and try not to pay full rate for that would be. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I always try to look at these things as a mutual beneficial relationship. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not just I'm not just there to send you invoices and get paid for my time. You know, the, yeah. we're both going to win yeah. if I'm doing a really good job for you. So if you yeah. you know, I'm I'm prepared to put myself out a little bit, you know, stretch myself a little bit to build that relationship, to build definitely yeah. build on that and give us both a strong a strong platform on which to to operate. So yeah. yeah, I think it's you know, if you're if you're looking at that, you know, you want to be dealing with the right sort of people at the end of the day. Yeah. So before we move on from the, from this topic, and I know that going into the next sort of part of the podcast, we're going to go through sort of life cycle of a of a tech startup and sort of think about the things that they should be doing at each stage, which I think will be you know really beneficial to to talk about loads of value. But you mentioned there about the idea of um, if you're in house, you've got the fuller picture of the business business model, you know, everything really, you're getting to see the whole thing and you're in on the conversations, even if they don't really apply directly to what you're doing. And there's loads of sort of information you can get by osmosis uh, through that. And I hear that talked about a lot. And I, and I think I have a good understanding of what it is. And I think you have a good understanding of what it is. But can we sort of drill down into specific things that an in-house patent attorney or IP counsel would do that an external patent attorney would not do yeah some some really clear ones are things like you may think a particular piece of technology is only relevant to say one product or something yeah. um whereas if your ip counsel or power attorney was there on a day-to-day basis he might sit there and go and actually realize hang on you're using a variation of that elsewhere or you're looking yeah. to use a variation of that elsewhere yeah. and we need to make sure we build that into our ip protection you know because mm-hmm. at the moment the scope is focused on that product we need to widen that scope out now a patent attorneys try and do that as part of their job. They try and think outside the box a little bit yeah. and make sure they've got that broad scope. But sometimes it's very difficult for them to do that when they when they are they do have that isolated view. Yeah. You know, they can try and think very wide and end up not thinking wide enough or or just not thinking about the other opportunities that are there. So that's a prime example of the sort of thing as an IP counsel you get, you know, and yeah. you get to see maybe even products that are in different um technology areas within the business. You know, I've worked yeah. in house in the, in businesses that have various different technology areas. And I've suddenly become aware, actually, we're doing this in this technology area and they're doing something very, very similar somewhere else. So I can try and protect both. Uh, That's a prime example. Other things are just simple bits and pieces like, um, you know, you'll be surprised how often your uh, relationships with external contractors, external third parties might bite on your IP or your confidential information. Sure. And a lot of time people enter into these things, not not blindly, but without that level of awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've heard discussions of, oh, we're going to go and see so-and-so to discuss X. And you go, oh, well, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> you, know, you may have an NDA, but if you go and tell them about the features you yeah. need on for this for this thing they can go away and start developing it we need to manage that relationship appropriately yeah. all these sorts of bits and pieces that i think if you gave people enough time they'd think about but without the level of expertise yeah you know, sure. they're just not picking up on some of these points yeah and it's even more acute in a in a business where you know you're basically dealing with founders and maybe one or two of the people that have sort of come on board it's very rare that anyone's got extensive experience of IP, or if they have, it's usually as a um, as a receiver of IP services rather than a provider yep. um, of IP services. So, in those situations, it's even harder to be thinking of those things. 
Yeah, agreed. That's brilliant. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, and I think we can move on now then and stop talking about sort of um, a, a, an imaginary uh, startup, if you like. Uh, I don't know. We could give it a name. We probably won't. <laughs> neither <laughs> neither you nor me are imaginative enough no. to come up with anything. <laughs> we leave that to our client, don't we? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so if we've got a startup um, that's maybe, I don't know, we can create a scenario, but we can think about different scenarios. You know, it could be a spin out from a university, could be just two people get together and kind of think of an idea and 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 go for it. I mean, it could be that they're spinning out from another business or whatever, but you've got a startup. So you probably, the situation is that you're low on cash. And I find often more important uh, is low on bandwidth and actually personnel resource to be able to do this because, you know, there's a lot of stuff flies at you when you're in a business from all sorts of different directions. And yet they understand in a loose way that IP is important or it's at least going to be important for their journey. But they're kind of the only real external providers they can go to are kind of the, the known sort of things of IP solicitor, I, you know, patent attorney, uh, trademark attorney. But there's, there's, as we've just established, there's more to it than that. And there's, So what should they be doing in your estimation anyway? What do you reckon? in that situation, these people should be doing to sort of put themselves in the best position? I think from, from my perspective, if you're a tech startup, you do want to be thinking about your IP strategy from very early on. Okay. Uh, and that probably, unfortunately, does mean trying to find somebody who can give you some broad brush advice about the IP that you already have, if you do already have some, and the stuff yeah. you're likely to generate, and have a discussion with you about how that supports your revenue generation. Um, yeah. In that way, you can kind of do a bit of a cost-benefit analysis on, okay, what do I do now? Do I do I need to file this core patent application really early? Do I need to focus on, you know, registered designs, for example, because we're actually the, the key part of it is going to be our product design rather than necessarily the technology directly itself. How um, how much of a priority should we make protecting our brand? So filing trademarks, whatever yeah. it might be. And they, yeah. they can give you at least a bit of a steer about what IP you've got and how that's going to support your revenue. And that's to some extent going to be based on your business model, what your technology is, all those sorts of things. And the problem is there's a whole spectrum of that stuff. You know, I've yeah. worked in a, for a, a, bit, a university spin out that was developing technology to license. So that's a very different yeah. you know, position to someone who's developing, you know, they've got their own startup, no spin outs to start up from scratch and they're developing products. They're going to sell directly to consumers. You know, that's a very yeah. different Set of, set of circumstances and very different priorities may end up with similar strategies, but for very different reasons. Yeah. Um, and I think, so for me, I think that's important. And unfortunately, that probably does mean trying to find somebody with a bit of expertise who can support you in that discussion, because understanding what IP you've got, you can probably yeah. sit down and to some extent, you know, if, you, if you've got some experience with IP, map some of that out. But I think doing that in isolation with that expertise is, a, you know, is, is you potentially risk missing some important points there. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I think in in a minute, I'd like to talk to you about who you think that person is uh, in the current sort of IP landscape, you know, in the market, if you like. But first of all, I, I'm interested in in the term IP strategy because it's it's one of those things that I think is said a lot. Um, and I think between IP professionals, we know what we're talking about when we say it, but. It feels like woolly to me. It yeah. feels quite woolly, doesn't it? And it feels, well, I don't know if woolly is the right word. It kind of feels like it could have a number of different meanings. I mean, I know people that would say the word strategy shouldn't be used because you only have one strategy and it's a business. It's a commercial strategy. Everything else is tactics. But then you get into like semantics and things like that. But what's your definition? 
having been in-house and done quite a bit and done it for a few different businesses of what an IP strategy actually is. What What is it? I suppose for me, it, it is a sort of a set of, um, it's a bit of, it's a combination of two things, really. A bit of a plan, mm-hmm. what you're going to do and when, yeah. um, but also outlining the whys. Um, yeah. Why are you going to do certain things? Because you Great might point. find actually over time that changes. If yeah. your whys change, your plan has to change. Um, and a prime example I can give of that is, you know, I I work for a business that had, again, had different technology areas. Um, yeah. Some technology areas are more mature than others. Mm-hmm. So the strategy for a mature area was quite different to one for a new area. The mature area, in, innovation is incremental, um you know you, you're filing maybe on slightly narrower things yeah. might want to file slightly less because you know it's not such a priority anymore whereas the new areas where there might be a bigger delta between you and the competition because you're you know again that's the reason you're going to the new area yeah. you might want to file more broadly you might want to file more patents because you're filing on just more innovation generally because yeah. the innovation gap is bigger so again it depends and that may change over time your business model may change over time you might start off as a licensing business and decide actually we're going to manufacture some products now or you know what even down to what your licensing may change um so it's worth having that having your plan okay we're gonna we decided the first thing we're gonna do is file two or three core pattern applications then we're gonna move on to registered designs whatever it might be based on that sort of cost benefit analysis um and how that maps against your sort of progress plan um but also capturing the whys yeah. why are we doing these things because as soon as the why's change and again that aligns with the business commercial strategy you'll need to change that plan so i think it's a combination of two things really yeah i think that why point is is really important actually and i think it's the bit that in my experience talking to startups and smes that's the bit that they don't they can't make that connection because without that without understanding the why you can't really connect it to what your business is doing you know i've said something similar but then it is as a because right which is the same thing we do this because and yep. it's, it's exactly the same point i think just yeah. expressed uh slightly differently um and the point you made about updating it as well i mean i've been running a startup of my own or all right it's not a tech startup and it's nowhere near as complex um as as any you know as something that's got a you know business has got to produce anything or anything like that but i'm acutely aware that things change really really quickly in a startup mainly because you're kind of trying something new and therefore you're getting feedback from the market from all sorts of different places and if you i mean you ought to be adapting uh, to that um and so things change fairly rapidly so updating for a startup i mean what do you think how how i mean it's going to be dependent you're going to say it depends on you that's what you're going to say i know you're going to i know you're going to say that but how often should a business uh, update their sort of IP strategy in those early days, do you reckon? I think what what you need to be acutely aware of is your IP strategy, I suppose, is, is a pillar of your business strategy. Yeah. Um, so if you're updating your business strategy, you yeah. update your IP strategy. Right. So if for some reason you've decided actually, you know, we're going to add this revenue stream in, um, you look at your IP strategy and go, okay, how can we help protect or support that with, yeah. our, with our IP strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the two should be, com- the two effectively should be, or IP should be a strand of your business strategy if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. And when you update the business strategy, IP automatically gets updated as part of that overall picture. Um, I, I think it's probably also worth, like anything, having some regular touch points, whether it's, you know, depending on the speed of the industry you're working in, it could be yeah. anything from every six months to every year, just to have a review and say, is this still sensible? Um, yeah. 
even down to the fact that when you review it, you might go, okay, we started off saying we're going to file two or three core patent applications, but actually they've been shot down during prosecution. So no, that's no longer so important to us. Yeah. Is there some way we need to tweak that in order to can, you know, continue to make sure that that IP strategy is supporting the business? You know, these sorts of things. So it's a, it's a sort of two-way feedback loop. The business feeds in and the sort of status of your IP yeah. feeds back in as well. Yeah. So I can see that there's sort of an event-driven aspect to it, which is sort of if the business plan or the the commercial strategy changes, then that ripples through on all aspects of the business, one of those being IP. And it would be a sensible thing to pick up your IP strategy at that point and say, is this still fit for purpose? Um, but then there's also sort of, I think, and I think this makes sense as well. I think you make a good point, which is that, you know, fairly regularly, it would, I mean, you'd review these things anyway, you'd hope. Most businesses yeah. would sort of take an annual look across the whole piece. And at that time, it's probably worth also asking the question, are we still doing what we need to do? I think that makes sense. But what um, what what I guess, if, when I think about that, and I think about um, the difference between a big corporate that you might be in-house for and you might have experience with, for them doing that sort of thing and getting the expertise in, it's no real problem, you know, it's a slightly bigger entry yep. on a profit and loss statement somewhere, you know, and it's not really a, a, an issue, but for a startup, that means expertise every time. And that f- feels expensive. So is there sort of, I mean, I guess, is there anything you could sort of say that they could do to smooth that process, make it easier, maybe sort of less sort of resource heavy in terms of finance and that type of thing. And then I'm going to ask you who in all of the professional services people out there do they go to for that type of advice in terms of smoothing out um again i think in an ideal world you would engage enough with some sort of ip professional where you develop enough of understanding to be able to release and make minor tweaks to that um but to some extent i think particularly if there you are implementing a sort of feedback loop you're looking and saying okay is my ip doing what i need it to be doing as opposed to yeah. just sort of looking at the strategy you are going to need to engage with some professional support and again hopefully you can have a relationship with somebody who can yeah. spend their half day a week totally. you know day a fortnight whatever mm-hmm. you've got with them saying right now we're in a position we need to review the ip strategy because something's filtered down from our overall business strategy do you think we need to tweak anything let's have a conversation i think if if you're in a technology business and you recognize that IP is going to form part of that picture, I, I, I can't recommend highly enough. If you can find somebody good who's willing to build that relationship with you, yeah. then, it, you know, it's worth its weight in gold. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the way that I like to do things. You know, you do the patent work and, but the other conversations around the business, they should form part of the service, I think. And the, and the reason for that is, as you've already said like really early on, it's beneficial for both parties nobody yep. everybody wants to do the best job possible for their clients right there's nobody out there even the worst patent attorney in the world wants to do that <laughs> right um, <laughs> uh, but it and so it helps you to do that and then of course the benefits to the client are are there uh, and obvious um and so yeah my, my own view is that yeah you provide the patent services but that commercial side of things it's actually really it's it's really important for you to be able to do the other stuff well as we've talked about um so so yeah I think you've got to try to find a good patent attorney who is aligned with or understands commercial drivers for IP yep. really, really well, and then is prepared because they enjoy it to sit down and talk about that kind of stuff. I think that's what you'll find. You know, I've, I've worked with 
different firms now. I both, you know, as a you know as a patent attorney within the firm, but also with firms as a as a you know being a service provider towards me. Um, I've worked with lots of different people, and the people who are good at the commercial side of things, they really enjoy it. You yeah, know, you've got it. They will. They will more than they'll probably actually volunteer to come and sit down and do these yeah. things because it's the part of it's the thing they want to do yeah. they want to sit and have that conversation with you they want to understand because they want to do the best job possible and they want to make sure that they've got that win-win mindset they know that by supporting you it's the best thing for them but they also just simply enjoy it you know so i know it's yeah. what i do yeah um, that's the bit i enjoy you know i enjoy the profession as a whole but you know without that sort of commercial piece without that sort of getting involved in the business side it's get it's quite isolated the job of a patent attorney to be perfectly honest with yeah, you yeah. have those conversations <laughs> is really good I, I totally agree with you and there are, there are some people out there who really enjoy that side of it and that's all they ever want to do and they're, and yeah. they're not that they're not that switched up they're not that sort of turned on by the commercial side of things that's not me and I think that is in the end I think that gets reflected in the clients that you're working with you yeah, know, the, the guys that that enjoy the patent work and love just doing that, they'll end up working for bigger businesses, outsourced patent attorney work, where the need to sort of understand those commercial drivers, it's taken care of someone like by someone like you who's sat in house and doing all of that thinking for them. Yeah. And then you just hand out the work, they do it, they hand it back. I mean, you can never do that completely. You always need to be doing yeah. something to understand the business that you're working yeah. for but there are degrees of it aren't there you know? definitely yeah definitely yeah. okay so our startup has uh taken the time got involved with exactly the right patent attorney who's like keen and helping them sort of develop some kind of ip strategy around that tech is there is there anything else what about so from a risk perspective how much do they need to be thinking about that i mean that's kind of like it's almost protection i guess I guess IP strategy covers it all, but what about from a risk perspective? What should they be thinking about at that stage? Yeah, I think IP strategy covers both the opportunities and yeah. the risks, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, opportunities, p- people think about IP most of the time, they're thinking about the opportunities bucket, what protection can I get? Yeah. Yeah. But risks, I think, is something they certainly need to be thinking about. So yeah. um, obviously, risk of infringing the third party's IP is is yeah. one that fall, comes to the mind first. Um, to some extent, that takes getting having a bit of an understanding of your um, of your industry, uh, of what your competitors are like. You know, um, are they big? Are they small? Is right. IP an important part of what they do? Do they are they proactively engaged with IP themselves? Do they do some IP enforcement? All those sorts of bits and pieces. You know, if you if you're starting to tread on toes with someone like Amazon, you know, that's a very different kettle of fish to you yeah. know if you're working in the realm where your only competitors are other SMEs. Yeah. They're going to be a lot less IP savvy and a lot less likely to you know want to engage in court battles over IP and these sorts of things. So understanding your industry um, is a starting point. I think and on that one. Is that something that that people can do themselves? Do you think or? Would they need how much support do you reckon they'd need from that? If you if this business could they could it sounds like the sort of thing that they could do a lot of the legwork on. I certainly think they could do a lot of the legwork themselves, you know, identify mm-hmm. their key competitors, yeah. um, you know, understanding their industry. You can, you know, if you can you would probably be aware if you know your industry well enough, if yeah. there's IP litigation going on, because it's yeah. the sort of thing that, you know, it will just sort of come across of you. Yeah. come across you'll come across in the course of doing business 
Um, so that's, that's a good starting point is just your general knowledge of your industry. You can do some searching yourselves. There are free databases where you can go on yeah. and search by company names and this sort of thing to see have they got existing patents, you know, uh, have they got registered designs, these sorts of things, you know. And again, um, there are resources online that will point you towards some of those things. You know, I'm sure on the UK IPA website, they've got some stuff yeah. that directs you that way. So you can kind of make a starting point on sort of assessing some of the risks of the third party bits and pieces. Uh, but again, ideally, at some point, you would want to get some input from uh, someone, an experienced professional who can just kind of say, yeah. yeah, I think at the very least, the assessment you've done is sound and it's a good starting point. Um, and it might need flashing out, particularly if it turns out that actually you think you're in quite an, an, an active area for IP and IP litigation, um, yeah. and therefore at higher risk. Um, and then you can decide whether you want to build in, for example, freedom to operate and clearance work into that yeah. strategy. Now, it might be that that's something that comes later on in the progress, in the process of your of your business, because you know protection might be your priority to go to begin with. And then, when you're getting closer to having a product or something along those lines, you might want to yeah. then be thinking about your clearance and freedom to operate. Um, but at least having that in your plan, knowing what you're going to do, when, and why, you know that's that's I think that is important. But there are risks beyond that as well, you know, even down to your own IP. Who owns that? You mentioned spin-outs, typically the licensing yeah. university IP. Classic. And that is a whole <laughs> different kettle of fish in terms of, you know, what rights do you have to that IP that you're licensing? Yeah. How is that going to impact on the business going forward? Even down to things like, okay, what actually is your sort of um, royalties burden? You know, yeah. uh, I had a prime example when I worked with a client, I then... And I finally, some time later, got to look at their actual license. They'd misunderstood their licensing, their royalties burden. Um, right. And it made quite a big difference to their picture to the extent they went back and renegotiated their license for the university. Right. Um, because a lot of their sort of business modeling had been based on an assumption about royalties. Um, so that's another thing to try and understand um, is the position around any, any IP you do have. Um, but also ownership more generally, you know, how are you planning on building up your ip are you going to be employing lots of people to do this or is it going to involve lots of contracting with third parties so again you're going to want to make sure those contracts are appropriate you know are you going to want to own that ip that's generated or are you going to be happy just have access rights to it because yeah if you want to own all that ip it's probably going to have a cost impact on the cost of that contract as opposed yeah. to if you're just happy for the contractor to own it and for you to just have access rights so these are all things you need to consider in that picture because it's it, it all does have an impact um, and, and the other thing is that i guess during all of this stuff the risk side of things particularly on ownership because it's so it's so clear and it's so easy to define to determine in due diligence it's going to come up and that's yep. when you that's when you don't want it to come up <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you if you're talking to investors or an acquirer or something like that a potential acquirer and then they start talking to you about whether or not you're in the ip if it's a strategic type acquisition where somebody's buying you for the ip you're not revenue generating or anything yet you know then that could be a real problem yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, definitely um and understanding that picture and i think I would imagine in most scenarios, someone looking to invest or, or or buy a business, what they want to know is that you've got a clear understanding of the picture and the impact of that picture. Yeah. So if you don't own the IP, you're licensing it and you've got some royalty burden. So long as you know that and that's built into your exactly all your all your modeling, then that's probably absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, but 
to say, oh yeah, we we own this IP and we can do this, that, and the other. And it turns out actually no, you're licensing a chunk of it from a university at a cost. Yeah. Um, and that's not actually been set out quite set out clearly and it's not clearly integrated into all the modeling and business plans. And that's something that's going to probably be an immediate red flag. So a credibility issue as well. I yeah. mean, it just it just looks really bad. Yeah. Uh, as well as uh, apart from anything else. But you're right. I think I don't think it's necessarily because sometimes, and I spoke to somebody um on the last episode, um about this the talking about university spin outs um then they're often not in the strongest position when it comes to negotiating who owns the ip yeah and lots of universities i guess are not are not interested in negotiating that it's this way and that's the way we do it you know um and so they might not be able to sort of get a better deal for themselves in terms of ownership but at least understanding what they're getting into that's a big part of it and i guess that again though this stuff is quite hard to do without some expertise right you need to get somebody in to understand that um and given the knock-on effects um and how significant they can be i think my own view i don't know what you think but it's worth spending some money i certainly think so if you're if you particularly if you are doing something like university spin out where there is that going to be that sort of existing relationship um and existing agreements you need to look at then you are i would advise definitely that you get some expert opinion on that because like i said you know uh, these were people who were relatively experienced with ip had dealt with university spin outs before Mm -hmm. looked at licensing agreements but they had still managed to misinterpret what the license agreement said about royalties and it was a quite a significant difference um overall um so yeah you know and that was some time into you know like the life of the spin out um fortunately they had they were able to go back and renegotiate on the basis they had some money they could do that with um you would not want to be doing that early on if it's completely changed the picture of your business um so having that understanding early on um is a a really good thing i think particularly if you are a spin out but even down to if you if you're looking at it and your plan is you're going to engage with contractors to do a lot of the heavy lifting on your development even down to know bringing in um contractors to work within your business if that makes sense and those all of those agreements making sure that they are you know tying up the ip rights the way you want to tie them up is, is really really important definitely um so as a final point i don't think we're going to get to go through sort of scale up and exit planning because we've had a really really good <laughs> conversation on what startups should do i think that's but i think a lot of it applies right across the piece doesn't it i mean yep. and, and actually what we've talked about there at the end is partly about exit planning you know i mean yep. If you didn't do this when you started the business, then definitely do it when you're thinking about sort of preparing the business for exit um, and get it all tied up, get it all put in nice, neat piles so that whoever comes looking, there's nothing to see uh, and no uh, skeletons to uncover or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, but definitely. As a final point, I want to come back to uh, freedom to operate um, and the idea of trying to offset that risk uh, of infringement. And I wondered whether or not um, you have a particular sort of way of going about um, freedom to operate. For anybody who doesn't know, you know, who's listening, freedom to operate, what we're really talking about there is is going out um, and finding the IP rights, usually patents, of uh, competitors or other people in the, in the sector that we might potentially infringe by developing and selling uh, a product um, or using whatever in whatever way. Um, so... Doing that seems like a, a sensible thing, but I know as well as you will know that sometimes that can be an incredibly expensive business, so much so that VCs won't even do it before they're investing millions in a business because it just seems like, you know, it's too much. Um, you know, this can be a really expensive exercise. So 
is there a way that you've come across that you can sort of try to get some idea of the clearance position, you know, freedom to operate position um, without spending all of that cash? Or is it just to hold your nose and do it? Um, no, I think I think you can you can kind of build these things up a little bit over time to start with. Um, and you can try and be a bit strategic about it because it's worth pointing out that no matter how good your searcher, no matter how good yeah. your pattern attorney, they will never be able to tell you for 100% with 100% certainty that you will not infringe someone's life yeah. IP. It is just too difficult to identify yeah. all potentially relevant patents out there, for example. Um, but what they can do is give you a at least a degree of certainty over your position. Um, so again, you can do things like you can start looking at, okay, who are my key competitors likely to be? Who operates in a similar technology space and therefore might have yeah. relevant IP? You know, So you can be a bit focused about who you look at for starters. Um, that is often... That's often basically the key starting point look at who your competitors are also sure. look at your markets you know if you're only operating in the uk you don't need to start looking at chinese pan applications yeah. you know that's that's a start <laughs> um, but if you're looking to operate worldwide or within europe or the us you need to make sure your searches are focused appropriately um those sorts of bits and pieces so there, so there are things you can do to try and focus things down but it's also i think there's a degree of right timing about these things if you if you've got a really strong idea that's really stand out and really doesn't seem, you know, really seems quite different to what's gone before, then it's, it may be worth doing some early clearance just to kind of say, okay, well, yeah. is it as strong as an idea as I thought for starters? So it gives you, it's actually more of a sort of a, gives you an idea of really is it as, as good an idea as I think it is. But also it should hopefully be easier to find something that some, that's just such a standout idea that's maybe relevant. Um, yeah. Other than that, if you're looking at something that's maybe a bit more incremental over what you know already exists, then you might actually be better off waiting a little bit. Okay, still go ahead okay. and identify who those key competitors are, what your key yeah. jurisdictions are going to be, but hold off because you what I've seen time and time again is through the product development lifecycle, that product changes. Yeah. And features you've got on that product at the start or things you might think exactly. it might do or ways you think you might think it might be done might actually be quite different when you get closer mm -hmm. towards the final product. So you don't want to spend loads of time and energy doing really early freedom to operate work to find out that 50, 60, 70% of that was useless because actually through the product development itself, it's changed, yeah. you've changed yeah. the product. Yeah. So timing is a key thing because equally you don't want to do it too late because you do yeah. it too late and you've got a final product you think you're ready to launch and it Committed. turns out actually you yeah. are bang on someone else's IP and you're going to infringe and you're almost certainly likely to end up in some sort of you know, um, situation with that third party. Uh, and then it's a lot of time, cost and expense to go back and re-engineer yeah. your product. So it's it's getting that timing right. So it's not doing it too early before you've got any certainty, but not doing it too late before it's really difficult to change. Yeah. Um, and again, unfortunately, to some extent, that's going to be scenario dependent. It's going to depend on what your product is, how much development sure. you go through. And that's might be very different for something that's, again, a bit of software to something that's a, uh, physical device made up of various different materials you know again these are all yeah. going to be very different sets of circumstances yeah. um but yeah so so getting timing right i think is also another one because that can save you a lot of cost by yeah. being a bit more focused and certain about what you're doing yeah i think um, the great points and i would echo them um i think that we we do something that is we try and integrate theme to operate work with the the product development cycle so at the early stage you can just go out i mean i think it's, i still think it makes sense to get 
a proper search done by somebody who knows it. Um, yeah. I think, you know, doing a search by yourself is a really limited um, value, I think. And you can get something, you know, you can get something for any price. I mean, a search will do you a search for any price. You're essentially paying for time, right? And so yeah. you can you can get a high level sort of thing done and you can give them some some direction and then take a look at what comes out of it in the general area. And actually, that can I think that can feed into the product development cycle as well and sort of actually help you avoid, steer a path that avoids really bad um, IP areas, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, and what I've typically done is, depending on obviously the nature of the product, it's a bit of a, um, uh, again, it's a process. So what we often have done at the start is sat down and list out a whole lot of features. Yeah. And we list them and then we sort of apply an importance to them. You know, how important are these features? This is a yeah, must have, this yeah. is, you know, a like to have, is this, but we'll put it on if we can kind of thing. And then focus initially on the really important features, the features that are going to make a difference to whether you have a product or not, essentially. Um, and then later on, those nice have features, which are probably the ones that the, the ones that are going to change the most. Yeah. Focus on doing those a bit later on. Um, because they're the, that. they're the nice to have. That. That's a great idea, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pinch that and use it's, it. I'll, I'll, it yeah. I'll put some matter branding on the top, and I'll call it now. <laughs> no. It's it's how it's how we did it. Um, we've it's a great kind idea. of do do a rag to it. You know yeah. how important it is, and to some extent, because we're experienced, we could make a judgment call on how likely it was to infringe yeah. something. You know, another way of doing things, for example, is if you're looking at something, you think, okay, we have to have this feature. Um, we don't want to do a full whacking great freedom to operate but what you might want to do is look for old prior art so look for something yeah. that's over 20 years old because if you find something and we've done it before yeah, sure. on numerous occasions you found something old that gives you the confidence okay if someone else has patented out there this is prior art that invalidates that patent yeah so we're in it we haven't done a whole clearance but what we've said is we found ourselves something that's you know a patent killer for yeah. anything that's going to cause us a problem so it's another yeah. another technique you can you can use and that's again typically mm -hmm. works well with those must-have features yeah um but so really yeah, like so the it's... idea of that, you know, putting down that. So as you start to develop the product, put down the features that are going to be in it, and then sort of think about, well, this one is is critical, right? So then, if you find something out there that's an issue to that feature, then that undermines the entire um, product development process, doesn't it? Whereas it if does. it's a nice to have, then it's like, okay, well, we can still do the product, but we just won't be able to put that nice to have feature on there and that sort of thing. I, I, I like that idea. I and like you also you also tend to find the must haves are probably the ones with the biggest leaps of innovation. Yeah. Um, whereas the the nice to haves will probably be incremental innovations to some extent. Yeah. And therefore you can look at that and you can normally go, okay, well, that's an incremental thing, but there's a bit of prior out there on that, but there's actually a workaround. There's yeah. an alternative, maybe non-ideal way of doing it, but I can still have that feature and just can't do it that way. Yeah, um, exactly. or if i have that feature it might be more slightly more costly to implement do i want to do that or not because yeah. that workaround is done a different way yeah. and again this is going to vary depending on what your product is you know again a bit of software is going to be very different than something else um but equally it'll have a different impact you know yeah. it's it might be quite easy to come up with a different implementation for a software feature than it would be for physical features for example yeah. um so yeah so i that's mm -hmm. that's another way of kind of prioritizing what you do yeah. um and your point is is exactly right that what you're trying to avoid here is a situation where to reverse because of the IP position would be expensive. And that can be there can be lots of different things that you've invested in a product. They can be emotional. Um, it can be which <laughs> can still be important. Uh, it can be sort of just money, good old old fashioned money 
people resource, all of these things that you've plowed in, you know, you might have already sold a few pre-sale, you know, people got commit commitment to buy a few. It's embarrassing. There's, you know, having to go back and these types of things. And what you end up then having to do is do something expensive to fix that situation where it could all have been, you know, headed off. So I think that type of risk analysis is, is really important. Um, you've just yeah. got to find somebody who can do it for you that's going to be at an appropriate level. The last thing you want is on day one at a startup to go and spend 25 grand on a freedom to operate piece of work because that's just it's just not the right not the right play at that time. No, to some extent it depends on what you're doing. If if you know there is you've simply got one effective bit of technology you're going to build around and that's it, that is your business, then yeah, maybe yeah. that does make sense. But yeah. more often than not, that's not the situation. More often than not, you're working in an area where there are, you've got you've got some options. There's some flexibility. You know what your end product you want. You roughly know what you want your end product to look like, what you want it to do. You may have some idea how it's going to do it, but yeah. that is probably going to change quite a bit between the start of the product development sure. life cycle and the end. Yeah. Um, and again, timing those sort of decisions and those investigations appropriately um, can save a lot of money and a lot of time, both yeah. in terms of the cost of doing the work, but also the cost of, as you say, um, rectifying anything you, you, know, you come across and right. issues you identify. Okay. I think we should probably call it a day there. That's been absolutely brilliant, Alan. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I could go on though, you know, I could do this for another. And actually somebody uh, contacted me recently and said I should try to make these things shorter. And every time I try to do it, but I've not managed it yet. <laughs> no, no, I, I've got I've got a list of other things. I jotted down some thoughts and I, I think we've covered about half my thoughts. Well, so we'll just do just so. just do another do another episode, Alan. We'll get you yeah. back. Yeah, no, yeah. no worries. Uh, sure. Th- thanks. A huge amount for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Getting the uh, insights of people who are in-house is exactly what I want to do with this and sort of to try and give people the tips to be able to sort of just manage their IP better because it's in everyone's interest that people are doing that. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so um, if people want to reach out to you, maybe you don't want them to. Um, but <laughs> if people want to reach out to you, they've got any questions or anything like that, where, where can they get hold of you, Alan? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn. So Alan yeah. Chapman, um, e- easy enough to find. Hopefully I'm one of your obviously contacts, Steve. So yeah. they can probably find me through you or you can yeah, pass on my absolutely. contact details. Mm-hmm. I'm always happy to have a chat with people. Um, you know, what, again, it's one of the aspects of I enjoy about the job and the position yeah, I'm in now sure. is that I've been around a bit and I've, you know, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily wisdom, but I've got a lot of experience I can pass on to people. So uh, I'm, I'm always happy to help where I can. Perfect. Uh, thanks very much again. Um, And to the listeners, uh, thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.